I want you to know that about 50 people told me to speak up tonight. So I'm going to speak up, and I would encourage you all to do the same. I think just a little more volume, which I know all of you have in good supply, uh, will help others hear the uh, questions and your answers even better. We're grateful that you're with us again tonight. We're, we had a wonderful session, as I said, last, uh, last night. And if you'll notice on the brochure, the focus and, of our attention is about the home, a place of learning. And when we looked at these questions, we tried to group them in certain groups and tried to look at the major point that was being uh, emphasized by the question. And that's how we develop the focus for each evening. The overall theme, of course, is the home as God would have it. The first question that we have tonight on uh, uh, the home, a place of learning, do you have any suggestions for improving communication between husbands and wives? Now, we talked a little bit about last night communication with our teenage children, and I thought it was a very insightful discussion that we had, but I think the focus of this particular discussion is about husbands and wives. Dan, do husbands and wives have problems communicating? Uh, some do. <laughs> um, in fact, I think all couples have problems in communication. Um, studies have shown that men and women communicate differently. Uh, hope that's not a shock to you, but men and women are different. Uh, some years ago, back in the 90s, there was a, a, a federally funded study it came out in Newsweek magazine, and there it was on the headline, front page, men and women are different. I am so thankful that our tax dollars are spent in such a wise way. But it helps, number one, to have an understanding of how we communicate, and then number two, the biblical principles are, are so, so clear. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, James 1.19. Um, the number one, and, and I think basic, most basic principle of communication is to listen. Uh, you remember the, the old conundrum, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it still make a sound? And the second one, likening to it, is this. If a man says something and a woman is not there to hear him, is he still wrong? And the answer is yes. <laughs> but we need to learn to listen. That's, that's the basic part of communication. Now, we can say something. Uh, we can give a message. Darling, I love you. We talked about that last night. You ought to tell your spouse that you love them because you never know when they leave home whether or not they'll come back. Uh, you may never see them again. So, darling, I love you, but there's another element of communication, and that is body language. Nonverbal communication is some 56% of communication, whereas the message is really only about 7 or 8%. And then about 30-something percent, math gives me a headache, so it's somewhere in the 30s, um, it gives you the, the, the uh, tonal quality. So if you say, darling, I love you, 
a nice message, but it's rather flat. Darling, I love you. All right, but if you're rolling your eyes and looking at the ceiling while you're doing it, or if the newspaper is in front of you and you say, darling, I love you, and she's sitting over there, what? <laughs> Body language has so much to do with communication and the tonal quality. You can take a phrase like, I didn't say she stole the money. And you can give that, I don't know, several different meanings by the tonal quality and the emphasis you place on it. I didn't say she stole the money. I didn't say she stole the money. I didn't say she stole the money. There's three different ways to, to understand that one sentence. So we need to learn how to communicate and speak to our spouse so that they understand the message. But men and women communicate so differently that um, I have a series of cartoons that I use in marriage seminars, and one is non sequitur. Here's a woman who is sitting at her dresser, and she's putting on her earrings and her makeup, and obviously she and her husband are getting ready to go out for the evening, and he's standing over here. He has his suit on, and what she heard him say is, Unless you're ready, in the next two minutes, there will be a life-altering uh, segment in the uh, time-space continuum that will end life on Earth as we know it. What he actually said was, are you about ready? <laughs> the message she heard uh, was completely different from what he said. Now, when Emily and I are getting ready for church in the morning, I don't have to say anything. All I have to do is this. And she, I'm hurrying, I'm hurrying. I'm, you see, we send messages in so many different ways. But remember the tonal quality, how important that is, and learning to listen, to, to understand what the other person is saying and not, you know, waiting to, you know, thinking ahead of time to, to it's what you're going to say when they when they hush. So. It's a very practical question. It's it's something that all of us need to listen to and consider carefully. Well, let me say this: it, it's the the most important, I think, aspect of marriage. That's the first thing that's listed. When I have couples come in for counseling, I have a list of issues. That's number one, because studies have shown that the, in the first first year of marriage, for example, uh, the, the the three most basic uh, problems that people are going to have are number one, communication, number two, financial disagreements, and number three, sexual dysfunction. And communication is at the top of the list. Really and volumes list. have been written on it, so uh, we just you know, can say a few words about it. There you go. Robert, perhaps there's a Bible passage or something that we could uh, reference here? Not for me, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was trying to think. How do we make this practical Right. when I was putting this together? I know we all are trying to do that. But the thing that keeps coming to my mind is you have to want to do it. Yeah. There's no magic formula. You know, there's not a step one, step two, the three, or if you'll bring this home, or if you say this, that suddenly communication just starts happening. To me, uh, and I think has been pointed out that it's kind of a signal of what a relationship's like, whether there is communication or, or not. 
Uh, I grew up in, in my family. My mother did most all the talking. I remember my uncle saying one time, uh, uncle that married my mother's sister, said all those Ledlow women were vaccinated with a phonograph needle. <laughs> so I, I got the impression my dad didn't feel he had to talk very much because my mother was quite adept at doing a lot of that herself. But it, there has to be that desire, that wanting to communicate and know what's going on in each other's lives and how to, how to build, how to develop that, how to seek to, uh, to make it better, to truly listen with the idea of, of paying attention. Uh, you know, one of the words in Greek when uh, Jesus talks about hearing, uh, the word sometimes means hearing without perceiving what is said. In another context, that same word can mean hearing with understanding. And we need to work on hearing with understanding. I think desire is where it begins. Both, cup, both parties in a, in a marriage need to understand this is something that uh, it connects our lives better together. Uh, it lets us know where we're at and where we need to be. And so I think a great place to begin is just begin sharing what happens in your life. You know, if, if you're both at work or one's at work, one's at home, or even, even if you're retired, you're reading something in the newspaper, you see something on TV that concerns you, then express that. And you can discuss that, and, and that, that's making a connection. Uh, devotional time in Scripture, family devotionals. You can talk about, what does that passage mean? Well, what do you understand about that? What would be beneficial if we had a better understanding of those things? Just picking up on different things that you can begin expressing and, and discussing. And you'll find, as you do that, a relationship growing closer together, and then it becomes much easier for it to be a voluntary thing just comes naturally right. to talk and, and it makes it easier when there are issues that need to be discussed to be able to do that yeah. husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church right. which certainly help with motivation along those lines and desire to communicate uh, communicate properly. well and, and you think of Ephesians 5 where yeah. uh, as you said if he's going to be the kind of provider and the kind of spiritual head in the home he needs to be there needs to be some communication going on about that. If not, just read the Bible together and discuss passages out of the Bible, that kind of thing together. Chris, what about this? Huh. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, dwell with your wives in an understanding way or according to knowledge, King James says. And that, that indicates to us that uh, there's some type of learning taking place as you live together. Proverbs chapter 1 verse number 5 says a wise man will hear and will increase learning. Uh, it is not going to be the case and most of you know if you've been married any length of time that you're not uh, just going to be professionals at all this stuff and and for the first probably 30 years of your marriage you're going to be practicing this deal of, of communication and you know as well as I do that uh, to, to have good communication in any relationship. Now, what makes for a good relationship as a Christian in all of the relationships uh, makes for a good communication relationship in a, in a husband and wife situation. Yeah. So you put your Christian principles to practice there, but I mean, if you're going to be picking fights all the time because you're annoyed at every little thing and you're just going to vocalize your dissatisfaction with everything, you're going to train uh, that other person in your life, that spouse, to, to not communicate. Uh, there, why get into that? You need to be uh, knowledgeable. You need to be loving. You need to be trustworthy and positive and sensitive. Uh, 
transparency is good too because how many times us guys go into marriage with some kind of thing on our heart and mind that we'd love. I mean, here's the, the wife of our youth, the, the, the help meet suitable for us that we have chosen. We're supposed to be helping each other go to heaven and yet there is something nagging in my conscience that I, I am ashamed to bring forward and to bring out uh, simply because I'm afraid of how she's going to react uh, or maybe vice versa. Uh, that that shouldn't be the case um, with with your wife or with your husband. You should be able to share anything, uh, whether you're ashamed of it or not. There ought to be that transparency that's there. Uh, positivity goes a long way to creating a great environment for uh, for communication. But Jesus said in in Matthew thirteen nine and forty three, uh, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear." And so again, going back to that. Uh, that principle that uh, Dan was making mention of a moment ago, active listening is such a big deal in the home. But again, you're creating the environment. Um, I like the five love languages by Gary uh, Chapman. And uh, I've tried to advise all Christians to get into some sort of marriage seminar once a year, or try to find some sort of book about uh, marriage and communication, and study that together with your wife. Uh, at least once a year, get a, get a new material and, and read that together. And therefore, you're investing in your marriage um, and you're putting these things into practice. I love uh, what that did for me when I figured out what my, my wife's love language was and what mine is. Mine's doing acts of service uh, for her. Quality time is hers. Others, it's words of, of affirmation or receiving gifts. Well, I think that's good. It's not... The totality of, of love and, of course, physical touch, very important to my wife as well. Hand-holding is a big deal in the car, in the church building, and just, just everywhere. And, and all of that, if you, if you sort of um, appeal to these things that, that kind of create the environment, it, it really does make communication easier. Well, what I hear you saying is, all three of you, that we communicate in a lot of different ways, but it needs to be meaningful communication. It needs to be the kind of communication that is from the heart, is motivated out of a genuine interest in the other person, and shows an interest in the relationship that it improves the relationship and bonds the relationship in the unique way that communication can do. Uh, we're communicating in different ways all the time, but it needs to be the right kind of communication. Uh, if I refuse to talk to my wife, that's a type of communication, but it's not meaningful. Yeah. And so it needs to be the kind of communication that really will build a stronger bond in a relationship uh, in the marriage. Uh, what about this next question, Robert? I'm going to let you handle that. What important issues should my family know and understand before my children leave our home? give Bible examples that should be studied. I, I view that as a very important question because, you know, we have parents, now the children are getting ready to graduate, they're getting ready to leave the nest, so to speak, and so now maybe it dawns on them, you know, what should I be doing before this actually happens? I know we talked about this a lot last night and probably will tonight and tomorrow night as well, but to me the beginning point when you think about what biblical concepts do I want my children to know before they leave home, is what biblical concepts have they seen in your life before this time comes. Uh, we can talk about biblical principles, 
But again, if we're not seeking to live by those principles, we're communicating by our actions that they're not really all that important. Uh, for example, uh, I had a preacher tell me one time, says, you know, if you're always there in the church building on Sunday morning, then you're teaching your children there is nothing more important than being at church on a Sunday morning. But if you never come back on a Sunday night, then you're also teaching your child anything is more important than going to church on Sunday night. And which message are they going to pick up on? It's the one that's more convenient. It's the one that that uh, seems to appeal more to what's going on in their world, what they see happening in the lives of their friends and that sort of thing. So we need to make sure when we talk about biblical concepts as parents, we are seeking to live by those biblical principles so that by our life and by our words, they understand this is important. You just didn't say do it. They're striving to do it themselves. So, and in the world we're sending our young people in, uh, in secular universities or even into the, the job culture or even sometimes at some of our Christian colleges, they may get mixed signals than what we want them to have. And so some of the things I thought about that would be important for uh, uh, our young people as they're growing up to hear in home, they need to see and to hear what the biblical concept of marriage is. It is amazing how many young people, even within the Lord's church, think, well, there's nothing wrong with homosexual marriage. But yet, we know from God's word that it's one man, one woman for life. And so we need to, to be emphasizing that. We need to be talking to them about that. We need to be telling them it doesn't matter what culture says. You want to examine culture through history. It always is changing. And its value systems always change. And we're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed. Romans 12 and verse 2. So what about marriage? What constitutes marriage? How to, how to have a good marriage? We talked about modesty last night. Uh, that's something else we need to emphasize. What does the Bible teach about modesty and uh, how a, a young person should dress and, and how they respond back to those who uh, may have something to say about their dress being old-fashioned? <clears throat> why they should obey the gospel, why they need to live by the gospel. I see so many people today, it's like once I am immersed into Christ, I'm in, right? You know, I'm good from that point onward. And talk about the importance of living biblical concepts. If we're to have the mind of Christ, if we're followers of Christ, then we want to imitate him in being a servant. And he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, service in the kingdom, culture versus holiness, inspiration of scripture. Our young people are going to be exposed to the fact this is just a collection of good sayings that might offer some positive advice I was reading where uh, a, a minister said the other day, uh, not, not in, the, in the Lord's church, but was saying, the Bible was true in its time, but it's time for the Bible to conform to modern philosophy. Yeah, well, I reject that. And, and any of us would reject that, but do our, people know, do our young people know why they should reject that? Exactly. Do they understand what inspiration refers to, what it implies with regards to its authority? Uh, gender sexuality challenges are something that that are being thrown at how, how big of a list could we compile yeah, of these things exactly 
Exactly. That, as you were speaking about that, talking about these very practical points, I was thinking about Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to this world, which may be a general type statement that summarizes what you're explaining to us here. Don't let the world tell you how to live. Don't let the world tell you what to believe. You go to the Bible and let it tell you what kind of person you ought to be. And I think that's the point that you're making. And if, you're, if, if you have uh, an open communication with your young people when they come home from school, and you talk about things that are, you'll have a lot of things to talk about right. with regards right. to what's going on in their world and what the Bible has to say about okay. that. Dan, why don't you help us with this? Well, our question has to do with when young people grow up and leave home. Well, I would ask the question, well, you know, where are they going? Are they going off to college? Are they, just, are they getting married? Uh, are they um, getting a job and getting an apartment? The point is they're out on their own. Now, I have some special things to say about when they go to college. I think that that's a particular situation. Another situation is when they get married. But generally speaking, uh, what uh, others have said is that you, you need to be preparing your children to, you know, for that time when they are adults, when they reach that age of accountability where, where they're uh, on their own and they're making their own decisions. I get a lot of couples that come in with uh, problems with their grown children not behaving as they train them. Uh, parenting is not an exact science, and we don't always do the best job, and uh, we, we see that some of our children don't behave properly when they get out on their own. But I sometimes use the illustration of, of coaching a, a football team uh, parenting is a lot like coaching. You can teach the fundamentals, and good Christian parents will teach the fundamentals, as Robert has, has suggested and, and Chris as well. Uh, you teach them right from wrong. You teach them biblical principles. You teach them uh, about the proper worship and how to be a faithful child of God and, and all that goes with that. A football coach teaches the fundamentals, teaches how to block and tackle, and teaches the plays, and they practice, and they run the plays. But when the game starts, the coach is on the sidelines. When your child leaves home and they're out on their own, you're on the sidelines. And sometimes it's painful to watch your children flounder and make mistakes, but that's your... You've done, you've done what you can do. Now a coach sometimes calls a, a, a player over to the sidelines and explains to him what he did wrong. Or at halftime, or they, they call a timeout, they call the whole team over and they talk about, you should have done this and why did you do that? This, this is not how that plays to be run. So when, you're, when your children are ready to go, out to play the game of life as as their parent you can give them a pep talk and here's what I would do in that pep talk there are several things to emphasize and here are some passages of scripture you might want to take down number one young person as you go out to the world to, to live your life um, Remember that God is with you Hebrews 13 and verse 5 let your conduct be without covetousness be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
So remember that God is with you. And you remember that God sees and he knows. Uh, just because mom and dad are not there, you're going to make decisions. We may not know what decisions you've made, but God does. Number two, don't get discouraged. And I would read to them Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And I won't read the whole passage, but this, this is a section of Scripture in Joshua 1 where uh, the people of Israel are about ready to go in to, to conquer the promised land. And the, the encouragement here is to be strong and of good courage, uh, not to be discouraged. In verse 8 is the basic principle. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Young person, as you go out into the world, mom and dad have tra trained you. We've taught you as best we could. You've been in church. You've heard sermon after sermon. You've been in Bible class all of your life. Now you go out and you make a success of your Christian life. And no matter what you do, saturate your life with the word of God. Let this word be in you. Meditate on it day and night. A uh, young man was getting ready to go into the army, and his mother gave him a Bible, and she wrote in the flyleaf of that Bible, Son, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Now, we, we need to do a a good job as parents to instill in the hearts and minds of our young people that the Bible is God's inspired word. It is his handbook of success in this life that will lead them to the portals of eternal glory. And then we send them out into the world. And then they must play the game of life. And that's what I would tell my... I think the thing about parents, and Chris, you can speak to this as well, is being mature, they understand the dangers that are out there. They understand the significance of the consequences of decision-making, whereas a young person really doesn't know or understand that. And they're experiencing f new freedoms they've never had before. Now they've got all this freedom. And the real goal, I would think, would be to help this person make the right choices when we're not there. And I think that's what I hear you saying, is that the goal of parenting is to help this young person make the right choice when I'm not really there to guide them by the hand and lead them. And that takes a long time to do that. That takes a lot. Chris. Well, Third John, verse number four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Yeah. Uh, you're going to, you know, kick them out of the nest and they're going to fly on their own at some point. And uh, you'd like to think that they're going to remember everything that you taught them and that there's not going to be any kind of mess-ups whatsoever. But that's not going to happen. They're, they're, they're going to mess up. And so we don't need to be too disappointed in our parenting because, uh, because they decide to, to not do what they knew was right by God's Word. But... You know, you're trying to, what, what do I want my kids to know before leaving my house is, is the way I understood this question. 
And if you ask parents, and you poll all the parents, there's going to be some similarities. I think we all think that our kids need to know about the gospel of Christ, the life of Christ, how Jesus of Nazareth went about doing good and healing that were all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And you know, we we need to, you know, if we're going to send them to a secular college, they need to know about creation versus evolution and we need to give them the tools to be able to, to handle that in the, in the classroom. And, and we want them to know about the church and the plan of salvation, all that good stuff. Um, but there are other things, you know, that are passionate for me uh, as a parent. For instance, uh, you know, I want my kids to leave the house having a good character. I want them to know the value of a good name. A good name is rather to be chosen is what the, is, is what the Bible tells us. And so... Uh, you know, Romans twelve seventeen recompense no man evil for evil. Uh, provide things honest in the sight of all men. If they go out and do that, boy, I'm a pleased parent because they have a, a Christian character and their behavior is, is being dictated by uh, the Word of God. It's seizing their conscience. And now they're kind of flying solo and doing things and, and when they sin, they feel bad. They want to make it right. Uh, if, if my kid sins... I'm not so worried about that as much as I am concerned about their repentance. Yeah. You know, will they come back to the Lord? Do they have that kind of confidence to get it right with God? Exactly. And, and so I want them to know about things like that. But I also want them to take care and, and be a good steward of their finances. You know, Proverbs chapter 22, 7 says, The rich uh, rules over the, the, um, the poor and the borrower is, is slave to the lender. Uh, is it possible that if my child gets into a financial bind, that I, I will allow him to come to me and let me be his bank. I'd rather be his bank than to go do a car title loan kind of thing. You know, see, to me, those are things that, that I want them to know when they leave my house. Come talk to me if you get in a bind. Now, I, I can't help it that you got in a bind. I didn't want you to get in a bind. You ought to know better. But now that you're in this problem, what do you do now? And I think that that's just as important to know what to do when you're in a mess Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of thoughts just popped in my head. That's a scary thing, but we'll go with it. Uh, when, our, when our children get out and they make mistakes, we need to understand we wasn't perfect as young people either. Okay. And uh, so, you know, sometimes it's like, how could you do this sort of thing? We need to stop and think about the mistakes we made and what it took to get us back on the right path and that sort of thing. And the other thing is I, I would like to emphasize to everybody is, as a preacher for 40 some odd years, how many families I've had come and said when their children mess up or leave the Lord or something of that nature, the church has failed my young people. No, they did not. Right. You failed your young people. Amen. It is the parent's responsibility to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Primarily the father, a direction is given to you, but the mother has a role to play in that. And you cannot turn that over to the church and think one or two hours in Bible classes and a couple hours in morning and evening worship is going to be enough to offset what they're encountering in the world and the dedicated efforts of Satan against them. Yeah. So, where all of this is fantastic information, but the place to begin is saying, this is my job. Yeah, this right. is my role to fulfill. Yeah, 
and taking on that responsibility to do it. A lot of times people will come and they'll, like you said, Robert, they'll be filled with anxiety over the fact their children are not faithful. And they really burden themselves over the matter. But some horses don't train. Some football players will not take coaching. And we have to understand that simply because we took them to Bible study, we took them to worship service, we did the best we could, we studied with them in our homes, that sometimes they still go astray. It does not cancel out their free will to make a bad choice. And they do, they will make bad choices. Like you said, we make bad choices. Uh, but we stay in contact with them, as Chris was pointing out, so as to help them out of the bad choice and try to make them repent of that. I was more concerned about the conscience being stricken when they made a bad choice. If they were conscious stricken over that, I felt we'll work this out. Yeah. If the conscience is not stricken over this, we got a real problem because I really don't see the nature of the problem or the need to correct the mistake that was made. And I think if you get a person, a child, who has a sensitive heart and a sensitive conscience about them that's willing to do the right thing and wants to do the right thing, even though they've made a bad mistake, then you're well down the road toward improving the situation that you face. Teach them about having a tender heart toward the Word of God and having a tender conscience and always doing what is right. And that point about the name, I think, dovetails into that. Anything else on this? I think the next one kind of blends into that. When young people go to college, how do we help them remain faithful? This is sort of what we're talking about, and we may want to uh, continue the discussion. And I think, Robert, your point about that is they're going to be exposed to all kinds of new ideas. After all, this professor is a very distinguished professor. He's a very, he wrote a book, therefore he knows everything. And so I'm gonna to listen to whatever he says. And after all, all the crowd, the, the group is believing in this and accepting this as well. How can we help our young people when they go to college to understand the real book of life is the Bible and that they need to go to it unequivocally? I don't mean to monopolize the question here at all, but there were some times in my life, a lot of times in my life, I didn't know the answer to some questions that were very challenging to Christianity. And I didn't know what the answer was. But I put it on the back burner. And I would wait till I was more mature and gathered more information and more experience. And then that question would come back up in my mind. Now I could handle it a whole lot better. And I still got some questions on the back burner. Uh, Robert, what about that? What are we gonna teach these kids as they go to college? I think of uh, what Paul said to the church in Ephesus, Acts 20 and verse 7, and he did not refrain from presenting to them the whole counsel of God. If it's of an interest to our child, then it should be an interest to us. Yeah. And if we don't know the answer, we should be upfront and honest and say, let's research that together. Mm -hmm. Let's see what we can come up and try to find uh, an answer to that sort of thing. Um, I think one of the, the big things when we send our kids off to college or they leave home is to know they can still discuss things. Yeah. And uh, 
for us to be alert to maybe some signals being sent that this is troubling me, this is something I haven't heard before, this is a concern to me. So to me, if we've, you know, the, the, the former question, uh, you know, how, what should we be teaching them while they're at home? We understand we're still parents even when they're in college. Right. And that we need to take opportunities to stay involved in their lives and perhaps offer a, a little more guidance, a little more instruction, whatever uh, may be needed as they're going through this transition. So, uh, you know, cell phones can irritate you in church when they start going off when they're preaching. But being able to, to text your children and just check up on them, that's a fantastic tool to use. Uh, email, call, Skype, make some visits if it's possible. Uh, let them know you're still interested in their life and that you're, you still want to help them as they need help uh, going through life. I think particularly if you're sending them, they're going off to college, Look for congregations, you know, that's going to help support them when they're there. Uh, whether it's a secular college or even a Christian college, find a good sound congregation where they can uh, kind of uh, get into a, a good group of young people where there's some older people that can kind of fill a role of a parent or like a grandparent if they're of a distance away and keep an eye on them and help check up for them. Pray, 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 pray for your kids. Absolutely. And uh, let them hear you praying for them. Yeah. Uh, and know that you're wanting God to be involved in, in their lives. And if, if we haven't invested time in their lives before they leave home, it's going to be difficult at best to have a long-distance relationship that's going to keep them grounded in the faith at some point. It's something they're going to have to learn to practice themselves. We can teach them all these things, but and I've seen this in the Lord's Church too. I'm, I'm sure you guys have too. Adult children, when the parents die, suddenly you don't see them anymore. They were living on the faith of their parents. And once their parents passed away, they passed from the scene. They never had integrated those principles in their own lives. When I first started preaching and went to my first work and they start, I mean, the first Sunday I was there, we had a clash in an educational meeting and it's like, uh, I need to call up my professor and said, you didn't tell me about this stuff going to happen. And then you think about preparing lessons and sermons and that sort of thing. And I decided this has got to be my faith. If I talk about instrumental music, I'm not going to say it because, well, you know what, that's the church where I went didn't want to use it, and my parents were opposed to it, so I, I don't feel comfortable doing it. I want to know if this is wrong, and why is right, this wrong? Right. And what it did was better affirm the faith that my parents wanted me to have in God's Word and what it teaches in my own life right? because it became my faith. I had to do the research. I had to reach those conclusions. I had to live with the consequences of those things. And, and when, our, when we're teaching them at home and then they leave home, we should still be praying. We should still be concerned. We should still be in contact and, and, and maybe give them that extra boost as they need it from time to time to help them uh, realize that 
uh, well, when I was working on my master's degree, one of my prof one of the professors of the group I was in just started saying all kinds of outlandish things. But this was we were in our 30s and 40s, so yeah. we said, "That's baloney." <laughs> we didn't mind talking back to him, and yeah. he'd say, "This is wonderful. Freshmen don't do this sort of thing." That's yeah. a theological term, yeah. baloney. Yes, baloney. Philosophical too. Yeah. Philosophical. Yeah. Uh, so parents do need to be there. To, to, to guide them through those first years and, and re know why you believe what you believe and not all those guys out there have pure agendas in what they're telling you That's about. such a valuable point. Uh, a lot of children live on their parents' faith. I, I don't know that I've heard it expressed quite like that, but I think that's a very valid point, a very valuable point. Dan. Amen. Well, I say amen to that. We have two daughters, and both of them uh, graduated from Christian colleges and are still faithful <laughs> in spite of that. But when they <coughs> went off to college, uh, when our first daughter, our oldest daughter went off to college, she, she stayed home and worked for two years before she started college, and she went, she went to college. But before she went, we sat down with her and we said, now look, just because you're going to a Christian college doesn't mean everyone there is going to teach the truth on every subject and that you're, you will run into professors who are uh, not sound doctrinally. It may come as a shock to you, but uh, there are some out there and uh, you may run into to, you know, your fellow students that uh, are not sound doctrinally. So bring everything back to the test of the scriptures. So we gave her that little pep talk and some other things, but she went off to, to school, and about two weeks later, she gives us a phone call. This is before the days of cell phones and text. <laughs> Let me suggest something. Yeah, a real phone call sometimes, just talking, is, is good really good. I, yeah. I, I, I do texting, but phone calling, I think, is important. And she calls up, and she said, Dad, you won't believe what some of these kids believe. We have these discussions out in the hall after, uh, you know, at night after class, and we're sitting in the hall, and she said, some of these students, you know, they've been taught that instrumental music is just, uh, you know, a matter of opinion. And they, you know, they come from big churches down in Houston and places uh, like that. And she said, now, I've heard you preach on that all my life, and I know that's not right, but now where are those passages? <laughs> so gave her the passages. About three, four weeks later, I get another phone call. She was so excited. She said, Dad, I converted some of these students. Oh, she said, you know, they've never heard of Nadab and Abihu. Wow. <laughs> no, the churches, like some of these large churches, they don't preach on doctrinal things. They, they preach a lot of, of um, fluff, um, a lot of um, what I call cotton candy preaching. It's, it's just... Uh, sugary and sweet. There's no substance to it. So a lot of our young people are growing up in some of these larger congregations that have so dumbed down the gospel that our young people many times don't know these things. They haven't been taught. And so Sarah was so excited that she was able to show these students from scripture that instrumental music is not authorized in scripture. And she she, will, she was a genius. She crammed four years of college into six. Well, she's your daughter. <laughs> six years of college. <laughs> but she managed to get out, and she is, is 
faithful and, and has now her her oldest child has just graduated from high school and she's giving him that exactly. same talk. Exactly. Chris? Let me give you two passages for your consideration tonight. Proverbs 27 and um, let's see, was it verse number 17 here? As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And then you go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9 through 12. It says, Two are better than one because they have good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift, his, uh, lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls. For he has no help to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, and they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, you take all of that that's true in, in life, and you apply it to relationships that we have in the Lord. And we're going to apply this to our college kids. It is so important uh, for them to develop some strong relationships with other Christians if we're sending them out of town to college. Uh, we've got some young people here, college people that live, uh, have lived other places. Uh, they've come here for that, uh, that strength. Uh, the Northwest Church of Christ in Lawton, Oklahoma does the Back to the Bible campaigns. They have a lot of their material on their website about how to conduct these campaigns and do their do the Bible studies and and one of the one of the things that one of the the topics in the classes that they teach is how to keep a saved person saved. Now listen listen to what I'm going to make a connection here for you about this. You take a new convert and you put them into the environment of the Lord's church and they're suggesting make at least 5 good friends within the first 6 months. Make at least one very good friend within the first 6 months. Be active in church work and learn and grow in the Word of God. So you've got to be fed spiritually. You've got to engage in the work of the church, which would include evangelism, as your daughter did at college. And then, and then to have good friends, at least a handful of good friends. And isn't that what the Bible just said here in, in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs? That you've got to have those tight relationships. Uh, if you have good Christian, if you're a Christian child is going off to college, you want to hook them up with a congregation that is going to pour the love on them. If I send my child to a college in, in Tyler, Texas, and the congregation here is the one that becomes the one overseeing their spiritual welfares as a member of the church, I would expect that the people, not just one or two, not just the youth minister and his family, not just the preacher and his family, I want the elders, I want the deacons, I want everybody in the pews to lavish my child with love and to let them know they have a family member in this church. Somebody that they can come to, that they can talk to, that they can encourage. And, and if, if they need to go eat a meal, if they need anything whatsoever, to be able to form that type of relationship with them uh, that helps to keep them faithful. Exactly. Some excellent discussion. Let me move along because of our time. I, I enjoy listening to you talk about these things and some excellent principles are coming out of this discussion, especially as we consider this matter of the home, a place of learning. Uh, what do young people need to know in choosing a mate? Chris, I'm gonna let you start because I know when I let Dan talk about this, he's gonna take the rest of the night. <laughs> so these counselors, <laughs> the counselors are very, are very talkative. So I'm gonna let you as a counselor start us off. Well, man, I'll tell you what, if you're, if you're looking for a mate, 
you need to look first of all for a Christian. Uh, how many are you? How many of you are familiar with um, uh, Glenn and Cindy Colley? And uh, some of you are. They have little. They have these dating check cards. One for boys and one for girls. And uh, I'm I'm starting to print that off and show that to my children now at this age because I want them to see. Hey, you know what? You don't need to be dating somebody uh, that, uh, well, I, I mean, I know you're going to have to have some interaction to find out if you're going to click personality-wise, but you're really not going to have a serious relationship with, with a guy that doesn't love the church or love God, and, and you're not going to want to marry, uh, my daughter wouldn't want to marry a guy that doesn't respect and, and love her parents, and, and, a, and I wouldn't advise my children to marry anybody that didn't respect their parents. So there are lots of biblical qualities that, that you want to see in that person, that prospective spouse that you believe in yourself. And so is this person going to help me fulfill my role and responsibility as a, as a Christian husband and wife? Are they going to support me? Are they going to help me get to heaven? Uh, is this person... Uh, incomplete understanding of God's law on marriage, divorce, and remarriage as per Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. My wife and I sat down before we ever tied the knot and we talked about the things that we want our children to know, how we're going to parent the kids, how we're going to raise them up in the Lord's church. What is our view on divorce? Let me tell you something about my wife. For those of you who know my wife, Lena, she's a pistol in private. She's pretty reserved. I'm the extrovert, she's the introvert. But she told me one time, she said, she said, Chris, I don't believe in divorce. And I said, great, I had parents that divorced. I, I was always just very scared that I'd marry somebody who wanted a divorce, and I don't, I don't want that either. And she said, yeah, I can repent of murder. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's, that's great. You know, if I marry somebody that would kill me for cheating on her, she's probably not going to cheat on me, you know. So, so these things really matter when you sit down and you talk to them about this stuff. Does this person love God more than they love me? Because if they don't love God first and foremost with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, uh, then they can't love their neighbor as their self, and they're not going to love me as their self, and, and all of that good stuff. So these are some of the things. A lot of it has to do with their view on biblical things. But there's character issues. Are they quick to anger? What's their reputation before they started going out with you? Things of that nature. Robert, I'll give you an opportunity. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah. I think one of the things, a couple of things. First off, when you date somebody, out of that pool will be the person you marry. And when we were in Corpus Christi, one of, uh, one of the men of the congregation is daughter started dating and she was older in life not just a teenager but started dating somebody and they had questions about him and he expressed those concerns to her and she goes dad we're just dating we're not going to get married you want to finish the story <laughs> they got married yeah uh young people need to realize out of the individuals they date, out of that pool will most likely come the person that they choose to marry. And they need to, they need to stop and reflect during that period of time that what they see out of that individual may very well be 
what they are after they get married. We had a young lady in Dallas. I, I want to tear up just thinking about the phone call with her. Uh, she was not a Christian at the time. Sure, her husband was. His parents were. They studied and converted her. But in the process of dating, she learned he was an alcoholic. Hmm. But they married. And time went by. And she's on the phone with me. And she said, I thought I could change him. But I can't. And then she broke down and I broke down and it was, pay close <laughs> attention, don't let the emotions of the process cloud your vision to what you're seeing. And for young people without the life experiences we have looking back, that's hard to do. It's hard to do. But if this is a person you want to spend the rest of your life with, and you're going to be serious about trying to help each other get to heaven and the commitment that you make and that sort of thing. You need to be paying attention to what you're seeing as you date that individual because when the wooing process is over and he feels he has you or the other way around, you may find that, that it's not as pleasant as you thought it would be. All right, Dan, I know you're an expert in this. So I'm going to let you have some time here. All I want to say is ditto. <laughs> Next question. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, there are a couple of things that I would stress with young people. Um, number one, go slow. It takes time to develop a relationship and to have the depth of understanding of the other person. And so go slow. Uh, it's best to marry out of friendship. Studies have shown that, that the marriages that last are the ones that, where couples say, I married my best friend. Yeah. And it takes time to develop that kind of friendship. And I would suggest that it, you know, spend some time with this person that you're interested in marrying in settings other than the dating session you know that's dress up time that's oh we are best behavior we go to a dinner or we go to a, to a movie uh, whatever go to work in a bible camp with them for for a week uh, in the kitchen scrubbing pots and pans see how they interact with other people spend some time with them in settings other than just at church or or in social settings and, and as I said, marry out of, of friendship. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times. Mm. If you marry your best friend, you're marrying somebody who loves you. And then thirdly, pray about it. Not only pray, you, you know, yourself, pray, spend some time with your parents praying about your, your marriage and, and your life in, in the future. But when, when you get serious about a, a, a marriage partner, spend some time in prayer with them and pray about your relationship and about uh, your, your relationship with them and your relationship with God. So go slow, develop a friendship, pray about it, and follow these guidelines that are set down in scripture and uh, I appreciate everything that's been 
been said before. I would just add those things. I can't believe it. Is that all you got <laughs> to say about that? He has seminars that he does on this, and he just gave us five minutes discussion tonight on that. Okay, you're not going <laughs> Okay. Anybody else have a, anything good? It's been a wonderful discussion. It surely has about this, uh, this subject, and I, I do appreciate this. We have a, a Bible passage now. This kind of gets us out of, into a new discussion. And uh, these other questions have sort of been counselor-type questions, and I knew they would be. Uh, but what we're looking at now is Ephesians chapter 6. And Robert, uh, uh, I know you understand the text very well. Notice Ephesians 6 verse 4. How do fathers do this? And we might read Ephesians 6 4, and maybe the context that we have involved in that latter portion of the book of Ephesians. And then we have a parenthetical statement here, discuss statements as bring them up. Uh, these phrases, I think, are good phrases to analyze. And the word admonition is used in Ephesians 6, verse 4. And I think we'll have a, a good understanding of this passage. Uh, I'll read Ephesians 6, 4 out of the New American Standard. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, the two terms he uses there are pretty much what it takes to bring up children in the Lord, these two qualities he talks about. Discipline or training, depending on translation you use, comes from a Greek term that means to chasten, to correct, to discipline. It's the same term used in Hebrews 12, 5 through 6, where the Hebrew writer emphasizes God disciplines us for our well-being and chastens us. Uh, some children, when we talk about discipline, we're not talking about physical abuse. We're not talking about uh, emotional abuse. We're talking about uh, parents who love them and want to lead them in the right way to go for uh, their benefit and for them having the best life that they can. It's interesting, a term discipline originally came uh, from a, the word originally meant to instruct your children. But it changed emphasis to the idea of discipline uh, to emphasize correction that sometimes has to be applied with the teaching, you know, to reinforce what the teaching is. And then the word instruction comes from the Greek term that means warning or uh, exhortation, a word of encouragement or reproof that leads to correct behavior. So what we have here are two methods that are to be used in children coming to understand what the will of God is and how to apply that to their life. Discipline talks about those actions you do, course corrections in life, when they make bad mistakes and things you do to try to help reinforce taking a, a better uh, action, a better choice in life. And then the instruction that lets them know what that better way is. Teach them what is true and then the discipline uh, of whatever nature that falls into. I think we're gonna talk about corporal punishment Tomorrow night, night, yeah. so I won't yeah. even get into that tonight. But to, uh, to apply those principles to their lives. And then when he says, bring your children up, that's the uh, imperative mood in the Greek. That's a command. And so, fathers, these are the two things you must be engaged in to bring them up, to help them gain an understanding of the will of God. And how this is approached depends upon the stage your child is in. The principles you can teach as a young child need to be appropriate for that age. And then as they go into the teenage years, what's appropriate there. 
and then on through to the adult years. And so what is being taught are the same things, but the way in which it is being conveyed is appropriate to what they can understand and how they perceive it and figure out how to put all that in practice. And the thing that disturbs me about this particular passage more than anything else is typically it's the mothers doing this. It's the mothers taking the spiritual interest in their children. This is a responsibility the fathers have. He is spiritual head over his house, just as he is to love his wife. You know, this whole section is about relationships, uh, husband and wives, uh, children and parents, fathers and children, slaves and masters. This whole thing is about how relationships are to develop. And the father, if he's truly head of the home, he doesn't just push that off on his wife. He is to be an active and integral and leading part in them understanding God's will and applying the discipline that they understand how that principles to work in their life and there are good choices and there's bad choices and to try to choose the, the better choices. You're trying to, to bring them up into maturity. You're trying to help them progress from childhood to adulthood. Fathers need to grow up and act like a grown-up if they want their child to be a grown-up. And so this is to be done in an understanding, loving way. You don't deliberately irritate or cause resentment or anger. I've known some fathers that, that they love to get their children riled up because I don't know what satisfaction they got out of that, but that's just going to create resentment and it's kind of like human nature, you know, when, when somebody says, now don't do that, a child's first response is, I gotta do that. You know, yeah. I mean, this yeah. led to want to do that. Don't act in such a way that you create that kind of, yeah. of a response. Uh, exasperate, New American Standard used, means to incite or deliberately provoke the response of anger. Don't discourage them. Don't act in such a way that they lose heart that they become despondent, disturbed, lose their courage, and then get thinking thoughts about themselves that are not true. Well, I must be worthless. You know, I, I'm, I, I can't accomplish, I'll never fulfill the goals that he has in mind for me. And so how do fathers do it? You teach them what the principles of God's word is. You discipline them when there's a violation of those things that's appropriate for the action and for the age that they are at. And you let them see those principles are important to you. It gets back to this example thing we keep yeah. talking about as well. If sin is tolerated, then there's no incentive to get the sin out of your life. But when they see that this action, this behavior is not gonna be tolerated here, then they understand they've gone too far. Now this is talking about fathers, but I, I give you an example. When I was in Corpus, we had a a member there whose son got caught up in a gang. He was a trigger man of a robbery. Oh, wow. He's the one that got arrested. Everybody else yeah. got away. Yeah. He refused. You know, they were making him sweetheart deals, if you'll just tell us who's in the gang. Yeah. Refused to do it. He took the responsibility for it. It was under 18, so he was under juvenile uh, provisions at that point in time. But his mother came to Karen and I and said, uh, Let's go out to eat. Can, can y'all go out to eat lunch with me a certain date? So we went. She, you know, lays out, this is what my son has done. What, what can I do to fix this? And I said, well, one of the first things you need to do is get him out of this environment. Maybe y'all need to move somewhere 
where he will not be in that environment, where he'll not be, oh, I, I, I couldn't do that. He, he wouldn't want to move. Yeah, there you go. Well, then you need to maybe, no, 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 if I did that, he wouldn't. And I said, well, then I hope he enjoys life in prison. Yeah. And what? Because you have to instruct them and discipline them and encourage them and do what's right. You got to be the adult yeah. in the situation. And, and do what is necessary. Do what to, is necessary. To make the proper changes. Chris, help us with that. As I look at the, the Ephesians 6 passage, it, it seems to me that we may be dealing with some older kids uh, at this point because if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, you know, you're looking at the qualification of elders and one of the statements is having his children in submission with all reverence for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And the thought occurred to me, I don't think I've ever seen elders um, deal harshly with any of the members that have needed discipline. They always sort of go to them or they bring them in and they, they start to reason together and to think through things and to you know, maybe talk about the, the law of unintended consequences for the sin that they're in. Yeah. You know, maybe give them some biblical admonition to, to put that sin away and to repent. And, and so at a certain point, after they grow up a little bit, and then you can start reasoning together with your children. And I know a lot of times, you know, at least the way I was growing up, it was yes or no, and don't ask me about it. I don't have to tell you why, and you know, don't ask why, just yes sir and do it. And I've done my fair share of that. I pass that kind of on to my kids as well. Uh, but as far as trying to help them to understand why their behavior is wrong and what God feels about it, you know, I've had a lot more success bringing Jesus into the discussion and helping them, well, what, what do you think, what does the scripture say about your behavior, and, and how does Jesus, according to scripture, how does he feel about what you're doing right yeah. now? had a lot more success with that uh, and all the kids being different uh, my oldest I think being probably the most um, hard-headed I don't know where he gets that from but anyway um, I think that the, the way that we reason together has has been more effective especially in these teenage years yeah. well I think you're right and especially as Robert pointed out the word meanings here are very helpful and insightful in helping us understand this very practical section of the book of Ephesians. There's a phrase there, uh, verse 2, verse 3, that your days may be long on the face of the earth, yeah. uh, which shows the intrinsic need to do this, the intrinsic value. If the children of Israel in their homes were faithful and faithful to God, their days would have been long on the face of the earth. And as the home, so goes the nation, uh, that, that the nation will benefit when fathers admonish and chasten and teach and instruct. I think Deuteronomy 6.4 is directed right at dads. Yeah. Uh, it's just, Go ahead and read that for us. Well, it's uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. Following, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way when you lie down and when you rise up. And here it seems that they're to take every moment 
and consider it a teachable moment. Yeah. You don't see passive dads here. This is a, no, right. a very, uh, this is a, a youth minister in the home. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a good passage, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It's called the Shema passage of the Old Testament. It's the first Hebrew word in the verse, and it's admonishing the responsibility of fathers to teach and instruct and train. Now, Dan, I know you've written books on this, so go ahead and tell us now <laughs> this matter of Ephesians 6, verse 4. It says, the question says, how do fathers do this? Yeah. I agree with everything that's been said here, and we need to understand these things. Um, and this passage that we just read, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, you teach these things diligently to your children um, when you're in the house, when you're out on the way, you're uh, formally and informally. How do you do this? Number one, you have to spend time with your children. About 25 years ago, I was preaching in a congregation, and one of our deacon's wives called me, and she asked me, she said, Dan, can you talk to my husband about spending more time with his family? Now, he was a wonderful husband, a wonderful father, a deacon in the church, a fantastic businessman. I would... I would call him on the phone and he would be in Hong Kong. He was putting a deal together somewhere on the other side of the globe. He was making money hand over fist. Was his name Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> Close, but no cigar. Well, when he came back home, I sat down with him and I encouraged him, look, you're making a lot of money and that's all well and good, but you've got some young children here. Yeah and you need to spend some time with them. And let me suggest to you that spending time with your, your children is more important than all the money that you're making. And he agreed with me. He, he had a wonderful heart. He curbed his business activities. He pared down from a seven bedroom house to a five bedroom house. And he only has a tennis court and, and a swimming pool now. But he had to cut his lifestyle somewhat, but he's still a good businessman. But he, he has become an excellent father because he started spending more time with his children. And now the last one is ready to go to college. And all of his, his children are faithful Christians, and that's a, a, a success story. Um, about, it's been almost 20 years ago, I got a phone call from a woman who said, Brother Flournoy, she said, I, I'm a young mother, I have four children, all under the age of five. And she said, I'm going nuts, I'm spending, I'm at home with these children all day long. My husband comes home and I can't get him to be the spiritual leader in the home, I, we need some help. Uh, he doesn't know how to conduct a family devotional or anything like that. And I said, okay, uh, I'll come over on Tuesday night. So I went over every Tuesday night for about six weeks. And I would sit down with them. I got all these little children on the floor with me. Held this little baby in my arms. Little Joey was in diapers. And we sang a few songs. And I'm not a song leader, but we can sing Jesus Loves Me. And 
songs that we learn in Bible school. And these little children are sitting around, and here's Joe, the father, and, and, and his wife are sitting there, and we sang a few songs, and I told them a little Bible story, and we had a prayer, and they went to bed. It took seven or eight minutes total. And Joe looked at me and said, I can do that. <laughs> he, so we did that for a few weeks and got them started. Now that little, little Joey has graduated from high school, and he's, he's 19 years old now. Yeah. He's twice my heavy. He's a huge boy. But all of those kids are faithful Christians. Fathers started spending time with them. That little devotional that they've had through the years, just spending some time with those kids, instilling in their hearts the love for the study of God's word. And these little Bible stories from the time they're young, just little children, all the way up through their teenage years. It's a glorious thing to see. Now, it doesn't always end up that way, but bring up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. And the chances are, if you spend that kind of quality time, fathers, this is how you do it. Uh, spend some time at home. This passage talks about formal and informal. You teach your children in a formal way, in a little devotion like that, but also when you're in the way with them. You gotta make a milk run, you get in the car and you run down to the store. You put little Joey in the car with you, he's six years old now, and you can talk to him about the Lord. And you can talk to him about who created the heavens and the earth. And oh look, there's a, a beautiful dog. God created a dog. And there are things that you can say to little children. And as they grow older, you advance your teaching. But it has to start when they're very young and formal and informal teaching. How do fathers do this? Again, just do it. You determine that you're going to do it and you set the time. You're the head of the family. We're going to meet. We're not talking about large blocks of time, but before your children go to bed at night, you make sure that the Lord is on their mind. I think what I hear you men saying is that there may be a situation where a father has to say, look, I haven't done this right, but now we're going to do it differently. Now we're going to make proper changes. Uh, we haven't been doing it this way up to now, but now I'm learning better and I want to make a proper change with regard to the matter. That may be one of the hardest things for a father to do, is to admit to his family, look, we didn't do this right, but now we're going to change. We're going to change the course, and we are going to do it right. Well, you might as well do it because the family knows it anyway. Well, there you go. The family knows that anyway. Do we have two minutes left? Certainly. Let me give you one more illustration from my own life. I was 21 years old before I ever heard my father pray. My dad was a wonderful Christian man. But he was not reared in a Christian home. He was, he was reared in a denominational home. But he wasn't trained to speak in public. He was very shy. And he would not lead a prayer before anyone. And so all my growing up, I was the one that led the prayer at our meals. My mother started me doing that when I was seven or eight years old. And I led those prayers. I went off to college when I was 21. I, I did my first two and a half years at home, and then I, then I went off to, to college, and I, 
I came back home that summer and the first meal we had, I sat down at the table and I was ready to say the prayer. We bowed our heads and my mother reached over and touched me on my leg and stopped me. My dad was down at the end of the table. He had power for today in his hand. And while I was, since I was gone, he started reading that devotional and reading the prayer at the bottom. And it didn't always say, thank you for the food, but yeah. it said yeah. it was a prayer. Yeah. And dad started reading that and saying that prayer and then eventually learned to say a prayer on his own and eventually got where he would wait on the Lord's table and not say a prayer. And after four or five years, dad was leading the closing prayer in our worship services. Some men are not bent that way. They, it, it's hard for them to, to do this, to say a prayer in front of other people. But it can be done. Sure. And my dad did it. I was so proud of him. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that, Dan. I've got just a few minutes, and that's about all I've got. Uh, when is the right time to get married? That's the last question we have for tonight. I've forgotten whose turn it, it, turn it is. I've been so involved in the discussion and listening so carefully. Robert, why don't you help us? March 2nd. <laughs> All right, Chris, what's your date? <laughs> uh, seriously, if several things come to my mind when I thought of that. If you're waiting for a perfect time, yeah. it will never happen. Uh, and for some individuals, you know, I know we're talking about marriage and all that sort of thing. First Corinthians 7, 8, and 9, mm. Paul talks about for some people it's better to be single. single. So don't get in a hurry to find a perfect mate because they'll probably never meet your specifications. Don't drop your sights so low that you accept something that turns into trouble later. And you may find that in a, that individual's case that being single and, and able to to focus on God and trying to be God's person that way can be a blessing too. But there has to be a level of maturity. You don't just do it thinking about, uh, you know, the sexual aspect of marriage and, and that sort of thing alone. You don't think about the financial things. It's kind of a package deal. You have to grow together. You have to come to know each other. You have to mature. Uh, and understand a commitment that you're going to be making to each other. And so I'm not sure, you know, when is the right time when two people come to know each other and grow to love each other and understand what God's will is for both of their lives. And, you know, you've heard that saying, if you can do anything other than preach, do it. <clears throat> to the point where you can't imagine life if you were not joined together yeah uh, that's good that's a good analysis of that robert uh, it may be that we could say when you have that kind of relationship you described they'll know when the time is right chris well genesis 2 says it's not good that man should be alone yeah. so at some point <clears throat> it's gonna you know at least for for a man we're going to get to a point where it's not good to be alone it was not good that, that Adam should be alone. He created Eve uh, to be a helper suitable for him. Yeah. And, you know, he was talking about uh, the, you know, the sexual aspect. I see in, in 1 Corinthians 7, 
verse number eight, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's almost like, well, that sounds so utilitarian. You know, that, that just doesn't sound like a, a great reason to get married. Um, well, it doesn't to me either because it's been drilled into my mind that you need to, to love one another and you need to love God and you're going to help each other get to heaven and they need to be doctrinally yeah. lined up with you and, and all this stuff. Um, but uh, when I look in the Bible, uh, those, those Hebrew families were, uh, a lot of them were, were sort of, um, the parents kind of helped them find their spouses and, and then it was about growing the nation. And, and that's why you get over to Mark chapter 12 and you see, well, the man died and so she marries a brother and then he dies and she marries, you know, the leveret law of, of marriage right. because they're raising up seed for that. There, there was a heavy emphasis on procreation. Uh, that was a, a biblical reason for marriage. And, and so I look at all these, so many times we're, we're faced with a different culture and different reasons but the best one I can think of is there's going to come a time in our life where it's not good to be alone. Yeah. And we need a help suitable. Right. Good point. Dan, you got anything on that? Well, just a, a, a short quote from good. The, a well-known <laughs> well uh, psychologist, uh, Grandpa. <laughs> he said, each tub must sit on its own bottom. Well, that's, that's wise. Yeah. So, you know, every situation is different. All of these things are, are true. Uh, and need to be taken into consideration that maturity, uh, understanding of commitment, understanding God's will concerning marriage and the home, and, and all of these, these things are, are very important. And, and without those ingredients, it's not time to marry. When I do premarital counseling, I have a, two lessons on why is this your time to marry? And why is this person the right person and number three is why will your marriage be different how it how is your marriage going to succeed and why will it succeed so there are a lot of things to consider but everybody is an individual and you know one size doesn't fit all but some of these principles fit everyone you've got to marry someone that's eligible to be married right and that means uh, someone who's never been married before, someone whose spouse has died, or someone who has put away their spouse for fornication. Other than that, you form a marriage, it's, it's an adulterous marriage. So you marry somebody that's eligible to be married. And then number two, you make sure that they're a, a Christian and that you have uh, the level of understanding, commitment, all these other things that we've said about marrying your best friend and so forth. It takes, it takes time to develop all of that. So when is the best time to get married? Well, it just depends on a lot of things. Exactly. Thank you, gentlemen. Wonderful discussion. Please turn in your hymn book to 255. Jonathan's going to lead us in a song, an independent song, to encourage anyone that wants to obey the gospel tonight on board two boats. You've heard something tonight that pricks your heart and stimulates you to want to obey the gospel. I hope that you will, that you'll want to repent of your sin Whatever your need spiritually, we're here to help you. One thing is for sure, whatever the Bible says is right, and we're going to do what the Bible says. If you need to come forward tonight, won't you come? While together we stand and while we're standing.